0: This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Alert Medic 1 response.
0: Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast.
1: No, but in all seriousness, it does bring up maybe a broader question of, you know, um, what tools we have in our toolbox that we can use a little bit quote unquote off label from standardized protocol Mm -hmm. and where medical direction falls as far as allowing us to do that kind of stuff, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, you have to remember a lot of the drugs we use in the, in the toolbox, we sort of use off, off label, off protocol, like probably droperidol is a a good example. I mean, that's a antipsychotic and we use it. The primary use of it is severe agitation, which is not necessarily what it was created for. I mean, it's certainly a prime use, and it's also a very potent anti-nausea medicine. I mean, we're using drugs for multiple different um, things across the spectrum, and ketamine, too. I mean, we use it for pain. We use it for agitation. We use it as an adjunct for sedation. Um, I think the challenge is keeping everyone on the same page and doing it safely always.
1: We should probably introduce Dr. Nussbaum or allow him to introduce I was going to say just pull the trigger. Just
0: send it. Do whatever you want as a paramedic. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead, buddy. Do you mind introducing yourself?
2: Sure. I'm uh, Jeff Nussbaum. I'm an emergency physician at the University of Maryland. I'm an assistant medical director for Baltimore City, and I'm soon to um, become the medical director for Baltimore County, which I'm super
0: excited about. Yeah. Thank you.
1: That's pretty huge. That is very exciting. Very happy for you.
0: So what were we talking about?
1: Using... Procedures and medications in ways that are not necessarily prescribed by the protocol but still medically valid.
0: What would you do in the emergency department if you had, like, a, like what Ken had? Um, so
2: there's, there's algorithms. Ketamine's not on them yet. If it's on them, it's the third or fourth line. By the the textbook, you should use uh, phenytoin or phosphenytoin. Um, phenobarbital's on the algorithm. Everyone's going to be a little bit different, but the textbook would say phosphenytoin load or uh, phenytoin load. Then you should probably go... It, or benzos, phosphenylode, um, phenobarbital, and as you get further on, propofol. Nowadays, most people give Kepra, They give 60 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 4.5 uh, grams. That's probably most people's first line um, because anyone seizing that much has gotten copious benzos from um, from EMS and or their home benzos if they're a kid. You know, all the kids that have horrible seizure disorders. Um, usually get some form of diazepam, either intranasally, re- rectally, or whatever the, the parents are comfortable giving. So most people in reality would probably do uh, a Keppra load and then intubate and put them on high-dose propofol. Um, the textbook would say and phenobarbital, control the airway as needed.
1: Okay. I just had something I really wanted to bring up, yeah. but it totally flew out of my mind. So if you had something, yeah. It has,
0: it's pre-hospital Keppra, I think.
2: Um, it is not uh, here in Long Maryland, course, yeah. but I I think it is in many places um, coming, if not having already arrived. I don't think it's in Pennsylvania yet. It certainly was in our critical care protocols, but those are so different yeah. than, um, the, than the routine ALS protocols.
0: Apples and oranges, yeah. yeah. Where have you seen it pre-hospital?
2: Um, I, I think. I'd have to double check. I, I'm just not sure. It's a very, very safe drug. Yeah. Um, the problem is everything pre-hospital, not only does it have to be safe, you have to be taught in the stability of it, and I don't believe it's incredibly stable, which mm. is why I don't think it's in a lot of pre-hospital systems yet.
1: Interesting. I have a medical direction question for you. That's um, Totally off topic, but, you know, we're going to be all over the place sometimes. When you were working in Pennsylvania, didn't you once tell me that, for the area or the jurisdiction you were in the consultation for medical control actually went through the system, medical directors and not through the hospitals.
2: Uh, yeah. So um, in, so it's two answers to that question. Cause it's done very differently everywhere. Pennsylvania has a lot of home rule. So there's like thousands of medical directors, every small township, borough um, city village, whatever you name it has a different medical director. So things are done differently. Um, in for Pittsburgh EMS, there is a, uh, we have a, pre-hospital physician designation, which essentially is you have an MD license and you've taken uh, an abridged EMT class on top of that so you can do the things we don't learn in medical school. Splinting, putting on different types of oxygen. Um, You you learn about nasal airways and oral airways and stuff like that. But it's basic EMT, uh, basic street smart skills, I guess, um, to act as an adjunct or in addition to your MD. So um, it was either EMS fellows uh, who have graduated from emergency medicine residency and are in a fellowship. That's what I was when I started or um, second and third year re- emergency medicine residents who are in a vehicle. Um, we called it a Jeep, even though it was not a Jeep for at least a decade. It was a Ford Explorer with lights and sirens and tons of meds um, and available 24 seven, 365 holidays for consultation um, and refusals. And if that person weren't available in Pittsburgh, there was a backup who was an attending physician who all they did was answer consults. Um, We sat in an office when we did it. It was a shift. You were the EMS uh, consult person. Um, And so you became very, very, very good at it. Because if you do something all day, every day, uh, and train at it, you get better. So outside of the city of Pittsburgh, if you wanted to come into a UPMC hospital or we were your um, command physician. So, uh, UPMC t- gives medical command for I don't know. I'm going to make up a number, sixty, seventy, probably organizations in Western Pennsylvania. Um, they would call us. Uh, they would call us for help or something. And you know, the system was built very well. I'd see their EKG. Um, they told me. They tell me roughly where they were on a map. I would know where the UPMC hospitals were. They'd ask things like, "Should I get a helicopter? Can you look at this EKG? Can I give them you know, DILT for their AFib with RVR?" And so. You, you did have the opportunity to do the direction, uh, you know, uh, destination command, excuse me, where you'd call the local hospital, but there was very little of that. In my mind, the model works extremely well because there was a core group of like 10 of us who did this consultation. So we were consistent with, with the advice we gave. We were very aggressive in general, whereas I think, no disrespect to my hospital colleagues, I think they're not very aggressive because they have no relationship with you all uh, being field providers, and they have no... Great sense of the protocols beyond their initial base station training. And so they just don't understand. Um, We do an EMS rotation. Every emergency medicine resident does an EMS rotation. A couple shifts on an ambulance is not going to serve you well 10 years down the road. So I like that system, but you got to fund it. And and someone's got to pay for it. And medical consultation, uh, there is a way. It's very challenging to bill for it, but it's like $3. It's not going to, you'd have to do a lot of consults to really. uh, make it worthwhile.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, unless Moose, you have something. I had another question that, that kind of dives into some of the things you said. You brought up refusals and consulting for refusals. I recently had a really high risk refusal and I wondered what advice you would give for EMTs and paramedics out there with regards to dealing with high risk refusals.
2: Uh, refusals, they stink. No one likes them. Everyone in fact hates them with a fiery passion. Uh, we hate consulting on them. We hate being consulted on them. Um, but you have to document like crazy to protect yourself. And honestly, as long as you're advocating for the patient, you're going to do fine. So you need to advocate, advocate, advocate. Um, almost everyone is very good at putting the physician on the line and trying to get the physician to talk to um, him or her, the child, you know, whoever it might be. Um, but getting that second. Sometimes people just listen to doctors differently. I don't know if it's an ingrained um not appropriate, but an ingrained respect thing. Oh, the doctor said, it's not like I know the situation better than you. You're in fact there and seeing it. Um, But getting the person on the line, not just calling and saying, hey, doctor, this person doesn't want to go to the hospital. Their vitals are not great. Uh, They're going to refuse. They're adamantly refusing. Can I just get the okay to refuse? I mean, I've added no value to you. I've given the patient no chance to do, you know, I've given them no second chance or third chance because you've probably had you, your partner, uh, the police. It's also hard to do but exploring why they don't want to go to the hospital it's often something silly or not silly but unrelated like who's going to walk my dog tonight that's you know you guys have pets i mean that's really important um but you as a paramedic or they are trying to take care of this person you haven't even considered the dog their their package that's coming that they've been waiting on the fact that they have to pay the rent tomorrow morning and they're going to get evicted i mean it's it's challenging to get into that, but sometimes exploring that and seeing if you can solve that problem. I'm not asking you to come back and walk people's dogs. I'm not asking you to start paying people's rent to avoid eviction, but there's always some reason. It's not always possible to get there as to what the reason is, but there always is some reason they don't want to go. Maybe it's fear. You know, Maybe it's as simple as fear. Or maybe they know they're dying and they don't want to face it, um, but often there's some bizarre social thing that that is overcomable like can i knock on your neighbor's door um, and help you out or you know you can refuse care once you get to the hospital but let's at least get you your blood work so that when you follow up it's going to be easier so i would just say document like crazy advocate and explore what what's actually the reason for not going
0: what do you do for people that are just apathetic
2: Yeah. I mean, mean, some people aren't willing to share uh, and some people simply don't care. And as long as you've tried to convince them and really tried to explain in plain English why you really think, you know, that you're not there for fun and you don't get paid by them. You do get reimbursed by them going to the hospital, but you, uh, (laughs) you you know, you're not, you're not here. It's not a gimmick that you're here to bring them to the hospital. It's just, you know, if genuine care goes a long way. And beyond that, you know, a lot of people
0: refuse EMS. Okay. We should probably take a step back. Uh, What... Can you tell us like a little bit about your background, like how you got to where you are? Like, you know, because were you a volunteer somewhere? Yeah.
2: So um, I went to college in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I was in actually north, just outside of Philadelphia on the main line. I was a volunteer firefighter at Bryn Mawr Fire Company. I had really great um, colleagues there. It was awesome. I love volunteering. It's probably my favorite thing I ever did. I've done a lot of cool stuff, but uh, volunteering, the the camaraderie of volunteering um, is unlike anything else. And uh, college was awesome for a lot of reasons. But I really liked the summers because I spent most nights at the firehouse. Um, and we, we didn't see as much fire probably as I'd like, but that's probably good. Um, we, would, we were really good at parades, too. Um, that was not my favorite thing, but I'll be, be the first to admit we did a ton of parades. Um, someone even did come with a white glove and uh, wipe it across the truck the night before. So we spent a, a lot of nights trying to win parades. Um, after uh, college, I went back to New York. I'm from New York City. Um, And I did, I worked in a lab trying to sort out what I wanted to do with my life. I actually took the FDNY test um, and I did well because you get five points for living in New York City. So I got like 102 or something uh, because the test. you know, I was a college student. I was really good at studying plus a bonus five points. So I had a high number on the list, and my mom freaked out. She's like, there's no way you can go to the FDNY. I was like, I was just a volunteer in Pennsylvania. I think statistically that's the most dangerous firefighting job in America, shy of like the um, w- the wildfire guys in California. Pennsylvania volunteers have a horrible, horrible mortality rate, mostly because of tanker rollovers. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, you can't go to the FDNY. I was like, oh, i got to find a new career. So I was pipetting in a lab um, doing really boring stuff, but I volunteer EMS uh, one night a week. I, I really... I truly was an ambulance driver. I know we're not supposed to say that, but that, that actually was my title. Um, I was a driver for a medic, so I volunteered as the EMR driver um, with a medic uh, one night a week, and then I went back to work in the, back to work in the morning um, in the lab, and I love that. So then I went to medical school in D.C. at Georgetown, uh, residency in New York City, EMS fellowship in Pitt, um, which was pretty cool because we were on the street a lot and practicing street medicine like every paramedic like you guys do uh, in your other lives and then we also flew a fair amount so we had a fairly robust helicopter service that did both scene runs and inter-facility um so you, that was an awesome experience um we i got to see a lot of places you know in one night i was up in erie um we tr- started to go to buffalo before we got turned away and then it was down in pittsburgh and then we went to west virginia then we went to ohio mm-hmm. so it's kind of cool bopping around and seeing all the places and honestly uh I'll say, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about the, the Steelers and Ravens, uh, the, the rivalry there. But drive, flying over the stadium, like in the winter when everything's all lit up, is like, is awesome. Cool. And now I'm here.
0: What? How'd you get here?
2: Uh, so I knew Ben Launer from his brief stint. Uh, he actually worked for the rival healthcare system. So the healthcare rivalry in Pittsburgh, but really Pennsylvania, is brutal. I wasn't allowed to speak to him because he was the enemy when I was there. But uh, when I was trying to come back here. Um, I called him and I said, I'd really like to come to Maryland. My in-laws live in Frederick. You know, we have two young kids. We need, we need a couple more hands in our lives. Um, and he said, well, I, I like Maryland. I don't have a paying EMS job for you, but I got a wealth of opportunity. And he told some some jokes, made fun of me a little bit, made fun of EMS a little bit. And I was like, this is my guy. Like, this is. So uh, I came, I started with Express Care. Um, then Ben's promise came true. I started with Baltimore City. And now hopefully I'll find a, find a longtime job with uh, Baltimore County.
0: Awesome. So, describe your. I mean, I think it's always useful. It's very, I'd say, crucial to have some sort of uh, background in EMS. Um, I think some of the most successful EMS medical directors are the folks that were clinicians before. Not to say there's not cool ones that weren't. What's your philosophy towards like medical direction? What What does that mean to you? What do you What, what is it? What do you Yeah, I think that's a good question. What's your philosophy towards medical director, especially when looking at a system?
2: So there's a lot of the the medical director fulfills like a lot of roles. Um, So I think you you can never step away from the system oversight. And and you, you can't. You can't really combine the the idea. The the medical director is sort of a consultant to the operational people. So you are not there to make decisions and to change the way the day-to-day activity is run. You are there to advise the operational people, which I think is really important in a fire department. You don't want to overstep those bounds. You know, it's not your job to to get into discipline with people. You're there to educate and to push paramedics forward, uh, push EMTs forward, or push your system forward to provide uh, evidence-based ideally cutting edge and very safe patient care. I think there's a lot of roles in oversight of the entire system. Um, Historically, I think medical directors have focused a lot on the care in the moment and the education leading to that and i think now especially with large fire departments like we have around here it's looking at the whole system how the calls come in how they're dispatched the role of the police the role of the suppression companies um, Healthcare care is overwhelmed and there's no critical pipeline of paramed- there's no dream group of paramedics that's going to arrive tomorrow we're going to be short for paramedics for years maybe decades, maybe forever. I don't know. Um, so we really need to look at how all the processes we do. And I think there's a role for the medical director in coming up with the safest way to do that. Um, education is a humongous thing. You know, there's so much of the education falls to you and Maryland Mims is, uh, takes a big role in education, but the, the local education is important. And then I think none of this is possible without having a relationship with the providers. I think the best medical director sees it in the field. Um, I think there's a lot of value in field response, not in doing procedures or giving medications that you aren't allowed to give. The, the Maryland protocols are pretty good. In fact, they, they let you do almost all the things. And if you really want to do all the things, you if you get every OSP, you're pretty close to doing every useful thing. There's always going to be this, that, or the other small thing here and there. Central lines have never changed an outcome. Arterial lines have never changed an outcome. I would love an arterial line and a central line on every patient that, that you guys encounter, but it's just not necessary or, or reasonable. So most of the things that you need to save a life or make a difference, you can do. But being there, being in the field and seeing how it really happens is so important. And so I think the medical director being there to support um, and view is also spectate, you know, see what's happening and see what your providers are feeling and experiencing is, re- is really important as well. So it's got to be some mixture of administrative education, um, pushing the system forward, building, growing, as well as playing in the sandbox.
1: How do you think we incentivize that next generation of EMTs and paramedics? I mean, beyond the obvious financial um, incentive, but how do we, how do we get people to come into EMS?
0: it's a
2: It's a great question, and I wish I had the answer because it's it, it would be the cure for a lot of what we have here. EMS is hard. It's really hard. It's both physically hard, it's mentally hard. Um, it's emotionally hard. Uh, The pay is not there and it's not going to be there anytime soon because of the way CMS reimburses the entire model of you'd only get paid if you transport is bonkers. Um, The whole thing is backwards. I think a lot of it has to be aimed at career growth and coming up with opportunities that you can do it for a long time. Um, there are certainly fantastic field medics who are in the field till they're 60, 65, 70 years old. They're, these people exist, but they're unicorns for the most part. Most people have left for something else, which is unfortunate. I don't think everyone needs to have a desk job as they get older. I think you can be in the field and provide meaningful care. I think MIH and community paramedicine is a reasonable um, alternative to to being a quote-unquote street 911 medic. Um, I think those are rewarding careers. I think there's a role for it. I'm not an expert on it. Um, I think the data is very mixed on it, but I think those programs are, allow people to have longer, more fruitful co- careers that are potentially even more family-friendly. You know, the Baltimore City does a 2-2-4 four, four, two, 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 kind of model with their staffing. Um, you get a couple of days off. That works really well for other people. Other people need a traditional 9-to-5, um, which is not available in most EMS systems, though the community paramedicine model has that available in some systems, So I think community paramedicine, MIH is a way to lengthen careers. I think uh, career growth, becoming a lieutenant, captain, battalion chief, deputy chief, bureau chief, whatever you're called, um, those opportunities for growth uh, are important. And I I think we need to have more robust education systems. I think um, most of us don't have an education team to, to back the size of our departments. Most of us don't have a QA team to back the size of the department, I think it, everyone does 100 jobs, and I think separating those jobs out so people have somewhere to grow and aspire to, either in lieu of or in addition to their street job, would be important. Long careers are just challenging to be on the street forever. It's just very hard.
1: Okay, so let's let's do a choose your own adventure here. Okay, um, do you want to go down the 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 QA route or the community paramedicine population health Mih kind of route? Let's do QA first. Let's do QA. I love I love it. I love QA stuff. So when we think about the medical director's role with QA, and I, I would bring training into this as well because I think to me QA and training are. Uh, directly linked. You know, I, I think there has to be a marriage between the two in order to properly execute the functions of the QA department and the training department to, for them to be relevant. Um, how, do, how do you as a medical director uh, kind of get yourself involved in that advisory role between the two QA and training?
2: I think you. um, I think in the ideal world, you'd all meet together routinely, so that the training department knew any deficiencies or um, any areas of focus. Maybe not deficient. Maybe deficiencies too strong, but an area of focus. Um, I think the medical director would be the bridge for a lot of departments where QA and training are totally separate. Um, I, I think that QA is best done first at the peer level. Um, because I think it grows the organization. I think you would learn a lot from seeing what your peers are doing. I think people respond to their peers a little bit better. Um, But I think there is a role for the medical director, as I said, being on scene, but also seeing how things are documented um, and and seeing if there's opportunities for growth too. Following big data and trends is really important. So you can see things like we're not doing finger stick on strokes. We're not giving aspirin for chest pain. I mean, That comes out pretty quickly uh, in a big QA program. I don't think the medical director ever should be there to be punitive or to punish from QA. Just culture is so important. Um, mistakes happen routinely in medicine. I mean, this is so well documented, and we just have to continue to grow that that just culture of hey, you know, this person was fifty kilos, and I and I accidentally gave a hundred of fentanyl because that looked really bad, and I was in a hurry, and you know, I know the protocol says one, and I gave two, and that's okay you know, as long as you report it, that that's great. So I think the medical director is there to foster that culture, that just culture of self-report, um, growth and education. I also think there's uh, the high acuity stuff just has mandatory multiple tiered review. So obviously any har- any patient, har- unintended patient harm, um, any death in the, in the care of an EMS crew, even if it was predictable, you know, you got called to the dying person and they died, that's predicted, um, any high acuity procedure, um, you know, needle thoracostomy or finger thoracostomy in the critical care side and then intubation, probably honestly, a lot of the CPAP and BiPAP type patients, those are just very sick, the marker of extremely sick patient, um, to look for opportunities for improvement.
1: Okay. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. Um, and I, I kind of have two routes I want to go with this. I'm trying to decide which one to go with. Um, I guess we'll go with this. So one of the things I want to do with my district at work is start doing weekly case studies of calls we've had where uh, I think we can learn something and where I think it's an interesting case, of course. What do you think the good elements of a well-done case study are? Uh,
2: Good question. So I I think the giving the entire picture um, is important. So starting from the beginning of of the case, um, we often jump right into the fun part and we skip the lead up. And a lot of EMS is like mental preparation and thinking through what could possibly happen when you get there. Because you've had a million thoughts by the time you arrive at the patient's side. And these case studies, we often say like, yeah, you got called and you're there and this is what you found. And there's, you know, I think it's important to say, it's dispatched as this, what are you thinking? So you put your brain in in that, really, that scenario to really put yourself in the provider's shoes. Because these things often look really crystal clear uh, from the retrospective scope. And that's just not fair. I mean, you've been in the the shit before. When you're in it, it's just so different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so trying to put the people in that mind frame is really important. I also think this is something I probably should have looped into QA. um, We do a horrendous job of feedback in EMS in terms of outcomes um, and hospital outcomes. And I think that leads to a terrible amount of PTSD for providers. I can't think of how horrible it is to like routinely drop off people in arrest or hanging onto their life and just being like, yeah, I'm gonna you know, wash my hands, fill out this chart and get yelled at because I'm not back on the street fast enough. Like you can only do that so many times before your soul is just dead. Like you need, to, you need the feedback of oh you know what happened to that patient or hey this was crazy or nice save you you just we we have even our our it infrastructure doesn't allow for bi-directional feedback it's only the your your chart going to the hospital you know think about how unfair that is they see everything you did and wrote but you don't see shit like like there's no reason we you know we can do it it just costs money but have to feed the hospital chart like hey you brought this patient and here's their discharge summary think of how awesome that would be i mean you, you would grow as a provider you'd be like hey, I brought Mrs. Jones in the other day. She was really short of breath. Man, I don't know if that was COPD or if that was heart failure. I mean, that's every day in Baltimore City. Is it their COPD or is it their heart failure? Who knows? And it would be really helpful to start to learn the patterns because you'd get to see what happens. Not to mention, we see the same people over and over and over again. So we'd actually learn from that past experience. So I think feeding that back and including that in your case study, whether you have a hospital person or um, if you have a QA officer that has crisp access, you know, that That's an amazing feature in in Maryland where someone in your organization can see all the records. Not every last item is there, but but almost everything is there to really put the closure on it. Um, And then you can broaden out to, hey, you know, this person had an aortic dissection. Here's the the classic presentation. And you you loop it back in. So you include the whole picture, and then you include some pathophysiology at the end. But I, I think... The patient's hospital course, though you don't practice hospital medicine, I think is really important um, for your own growth, for your own mental wellness, uh, and for the case study.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I agree, hundred percent. It's great when we get that kind of feedback. It rarely happens, which is not. I mean, I don't think it's a fault of the you know any particular person or anything like that. I think it's just unfortunately the system's so overwhelmed. You know, and you have a, a high-volume department like you're describing, I can only imagine that the number of really sick people that filter through the QA department is probably astronomical. So
2: Yeah, and it, it, the QA department offered, often becomes seen as like the complaint department. Like, oh, the hospital complained, this person complained, now they're investigating it, and now there's a problem. Like that That often is how these things become because the train goes off the tracks and you start spiraling and it's like, oh, there's this lieutenant again. Like I must have done something wrong. And like that's bad. Like we try to not be that way, but it often becomes that way. Um, I think that we all could do better at it. In the ideal scenario, I think the literature supports that QA is supposed to be 80 percent positive, 20 percent not negative, but constructive criticism, um, something like that. And I think most departments don't hit that. Sure. Um, When we – with our um, with our organization that I used to fly with, Stat Medivac, they every chart got peer review, Every single chart got reviewed by the crew that's coming in. Really? So if I flew, you know, we did twenty four hour shifts. So if I'm flying today on Monday, you would look at every chart from Sunday, and often your feedback was cool case, great job. But that's possible you know. That makes it so that when you see a flag arriving on the chart, because we, we use DMS charts, when you see a flag, you don't get nervous. You just know that someone's looking at your chart. I, I, I think people document better when they know they're being looked at, mm-hmm. um, even if it's not punitive. But most of the stuff you wrote was like, "Yep, that was good." Or sometimes it's like, "Hey, dude, like, do you realize what you you wrote here? Like, that can't happen." And like, "Oh, that didn't happen." That and then you fix it. Um, so I, I think that's the be- the dream scenario, but it's hard, you know. We flew, my base was fairly active, and we flew like three and a half calls over 24 hours. Mm -hmm. You look at some of the units in Baltimore City, we're talking 24 calls in 24 hours. I mean, it it wouldn't be crazy to be, you know, uh, 12 calls was normal to low. Uh, You know, it wouldn't be crazy to be doing double that in some of the units in the city. So the expectations cannot be the same.
1: Right. So let me ask another question, and we're going to jump topics again because my ADHD medicine's worn off by now. That's all right. We've, we've rode together, and you've rode with multiple ambulances and EMS officers and stuff like that. And I've always wondered what your perspective is as a physician, coming from where you are with your knowledge base and everything like that, and then coming to ride with EMS and seeing how things actually happen. Um, do you feel overall ems does a good job of carrying the flag of medicine into the street or are there maybe some things we could work on?
2: I think for the most part, it is amazing the work you do. I mean, the uh, my hospital colleagues have no idea what happens out there. They have no sense of the houses you get into the situations you get called into. Sometimes the danger you're, the, the scenarios you're providing care and there, there's just no, no sense of that. Um, I think in some cases, the, paramedics don't get the respect they deserve um and i don't know why that is i don't know if it's because of culturally that's what's happened over time um firefighters get the utmost respect always it's just it just is that way in america um and i'm not saying that's wrong they deserve it Uh, but paramedics don't typically garner that same level of respect and i i think you know just I, i used the word ambulance driver the other day like that's not a that's not what you're doing i mean Someone is yes driving the ambulance, but that's the, the the minimal thing. That's the least important of all the things that are typically happening, uh, especially on an ALS, a complicated ALS call. So I, I think the medicine. I think the protocols. EMS medicine is great, and that we update protocols every year. Hospital medicine is not changing at these paces. The change of policy and a practice in medicine is so challenging. But EMS in a good system is change, is updating their protocols every year. They're doing very active QA. Things are get, There's constant re-education, uh, both through online education and in-person education. So I think in that sense, EMS medicine is really advancing. Um, the specialty of emergency medicine is not that old. You know, We're talking 30, 40 years old here. EMS medicine as a physician board is only... 10 or so years, probably more than 10. But, you know, EMS as uh, is, is a board certification is, is fairly young, and I think it's one of the most uh, um, advanced and progressive and aggressive things in terms of change and adapting to change.
1: Okay.
0: Um. Oh, I, th- I thought you had a leading thing. No, no, that, yeah. that, that, that's a great perspective. I think a lot of EMS folks don't even know what an EMS fellowship is. Uh, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit with Dr. Loner, but yeah, if you want to talk about that.
2: Yeah, EMS fellowship. So after you complete an emergency medicine residency, which is either three or four years, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, some people refer to the fourth year as a $200,000 mistake. Um, but you, you do a three- or four-year uh, residency in emergency medicine, and then you do a year of EMS. There's a, a textbook that you're supposed to go through. Uh, the textbook covers everything from like disaster preparedness to wilderness medicine to dive medicine to paramedicine to the history of paramedics to the theory behind why some people give um, cyano kits and some people don't give it. it. It talks about QA. It talks about leadership. It talks about the um, like NIMS and the you know, the, what are they called, the NIMS 100, 200, 300 series, ICS stuff. It talks about all of that. Um, And then every fellowship really has its own little flavor. Um, Johns Hopkins Hospital has a fellowship. They do, like, um, since they provide medical direction for the Secret Service, they talk a lot about that kind of stuff and tactical medicine. Uh, My fellowship did very, very little tactical medicine, but we flew a lot. I was flying 24 to 48 hours a month uh, minimum, more if I wanted it. Um, Some some EMS fellowships, I met some colleagues who did a fellowship in New Mexico and uh, one of their fellows was always on call for the SWAT team and they were in the Bearcat. There was a fellow in the Bearcat every single day. And that was what their fellowship did. There's some fellows, the FDNY fellows, there's typically um, several of them every year. They don't respond quite as much uh, because New York city is its own beach, but they do a lot more training and admin because they're putting literally thousands of paramedics through training, you know, every couple months. So they, they learn about New York city type things. Um, every fellowship looks a little bit differently, but there's a board at the end, just like you're certified in emergency medicine. Uh, you become board certified in EMS medicine and, uh, Almost all the people that play in the EMS sandbox in Maryland are board certified in EMS medicine. Mm-hmm. Certainly, people have been in it for a long time, uh, and and you don't that doesn't mean you need a board to be good at it. I mean, there is plenty of not boarded physicians who just didn't take do a fellowship. Um, they've been paramedics forever. They've been providing medical direction forever. They're certainly quite good, um, and it's not a requisite to be good, though it does guarantee some baseline, sort of like a protocol.
0: I got a, I got a follow up question that has nothing to do with that last question. What's your definition of progressive EMS?
2: Progressive EMS, oh, good one. Um, I, I'd say Progressive EMS is a, would be an agency that is constantly changing uh, and adapting to protocol changes and revisions, or the, the evidence ch- as the evidence changes and merges. Like droperidol left and came back. Like uh, Progressive EMS would be someone that does is is up with the changes and then that is willing to partake in in research, um, willing to partake in trials if they exist. Pre hospital trials are very challenging. Um, but looking, at, looking at your system, QAing it, and making constantly adapting to ch- and changing uh, as the scenarios change would be progressive EMS to me. There's a lot of EMS that says this is the protocols. We do it because we do it, and we're going to do it this way today and tomorrow because we did it this way yesterday, uh, and that's not progressive.
1: Sure. How do we How do we handle when we have a progressive protocol come out? that maybe local hospitals haven't caught up to in terms of how they're treating patients. Uh, And I'll use the example in Maryland, we are giving four rounds of epi total to a cardiac arrest patient. And let's say for some reason, that patient is transported, deemed not a candidate for a tour, transported, doesn't get any additional epi in the field, and the hospital, the first thing they're gonna do why hasn't the patient had epi for 10 minutes? You know, like what, why do you guys stop? Like, how do we, how do yeah. we bridge that kind of gap?
2: It's, it's a hugely challenging question, especially um, when your medical direction is not coming from um, EMS physicians. Cause usually an EMS physician is aware of the protocols. And uh, especially if you're talking about tour, I mean, a lot of people I've worked with love transporting people with active arrest to get an ultrasound, I guess, when they get to the hospital and prove that they're really, I, I don't know why we transport some of the ones we do. Um, I think collaboration and communication, uh, like we talked about earlier, bi-directional feedback of like, this is the protocol. This is why we do what we do. Um, in Maryland, you go to MIMS, um, otherwise in other States, sometimes you go right to the medical director, the different state medical director and say, this protocol is not safe. Uh, we need to address it. Most EMS protocols are heavily vetted on multiple levels and um, Maryland, the protocol review committee meets regularly, and then yearly puts out educations, and the physicians are supposed to take it as base station, um, as base station certified physicians, and as hospitals being certified as base stations. So they they should be aware of it. But I think it's the constant collaboration and communication. I mean, we live in an email world. It is endless the number of complaints and emails, and dis- we'll call them lively discussions uh, that are that occur all the time. I think one of the to segue off of that, one of the more interesting things is like when ketamine came out, um, EMS was very quick to use ketamine because we, we need it. <laughs> uh, I mean, these people who are hi- hyper agitated can be dangerous to themselves and to others. Um, and so actually one of the first places ketamine was used was Minnesota. And in the, like one of the earliest papers, like 50% of the people that got to the hospital got intubated which is like exactly the reason you use ketamine is to not intubate them. Like that is the indication is they need more sedation, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to intubate them because you will sedate someone with Verset. You know, once you've hit your hundredth milligram, like people are going to be down, but they're going to not be breathing. So the point of ketamine is to keep them breathing on their own. But it turns out when they look back at that data, it was like one physician like intubated half the people in the study because he didn't like the look of a dissociated patient. Um, and, And that guy wasn't comfortable looking at them. So that the whole study that that whole initial paper of the ketamine, Means not safe was because mostly because of one guy.
1: Wow! Ooh. So
0: with that, um,
1: where was I going to go? I don't know. I had I had something right on the tip of my tongue.
0: No, I mean that, that that's that's really interesting. We kind of got on that topic because of that interface between EMS and hospitals, uh, and I, I think that EMS physicians that work at least in the community that uh, they're also a medical director of or adjacent to uh, pr- uh, serve a very, very important part of that interface. Uh, and I can think of a few medical directors that work either way, where they're medical directors or adjacent to it uh, because they can have that direct interaction with the hu- departmental and hospital leadership while also ha- when I say departmental I mean the de- emergency department leadership while also having that interface with EMS right. um, and being able to almost uh, I've been watching Avatar The Last Airbender so I'm going to be like the avatar of all things and uh, and have that conversation bridge the gap I, I'm hesitant however hmm, how should I say this that will be the least editing burden for Ken hmm I think the conversation we've had so far has been for the ideal world and we've all been pretty optimistic and go lucky happy go lucky right but let l- the reality is this there's short workforce shortages right uh, there's significantly increased hospital wait times uh, from a system like that in, in a system that's so heavily taxed how do we optimize for the best possible paramedic to you know go out onto the street and do their job because let's be real uh, like we've already talked to you about, uh, there's a shortage of paramedics, right? There's a shortage of EMTs. Uh, and when they were you're, everyone's nose is to the grinder 24 seven, how, like, what's the first step? How do you optimize? Because to me, a significant portion of it is like budgetary stress, right? There's only so much of a budget a department can have from their like elected officials that, you know. Um, so and, and those folks are t- uh, their backs are against the wall from a taxation standpoint, which we won't talk about that with Ken. Um, and then it, it just seems to be a circle that uh, a cycle that is so hard to break. I mean what's the first and that honestly that question's for both of you guys. I mean what's the first step?
2: I mean, there's a, there's a million answers to that. I think the dream state is that you cure addiction, you care homelessness, you cure poverty. Um, and after you've skinned all, like after you've taken care of all those problems, like the call volume will drop and we can focus on the, all the things. That's one of the problems with community paramedicine. Everyone is like, well, we just need to fix these, these high utilizers. It's like, how, how are you going to fix the 60-year-old homeless schizophrenic man who likes being on the street and really likes heroin and has no interest in help? Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that a community paramedicine program is going to just go solve this problem is is bonkers. And, and that's what a lot of community paramedicine programs suffer from because they, they take the most challenging person who we as a society have not fixed and say, well, society can't fix them. You know, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, H- Howard County can't fix this person. But, oh, the fire department's going to do it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that is not how you're going to be, be successful. I think the approach is collaborative with hospitals and it's multi-pronged. Um, I think we we have a this idea that you call 911 and you get an ambulance there blazing lights and sirens we we have to sort of get away from that within the scope of the law um everyone will get the care they deserve but maybe not at light speed nothing hurts me more in the world than um watching a, a tiller ladder driving 60 miles an hour across a city for a chronic medical condition i mean that that is so dangerous uh, it is so non unproductive and it's expensive. It leads to provider burnout, vehicle burnout, which further leads to provider and vehicle burnout. So I think being smart with where we send our units and how we send them. Um, I think there's roles of sending alternate, alternate vehicles. You know, maybe you send a nurse practitioner in Baltimore city, maybe you send an EMT, but you tell the person, listen, listen you've been triaged as a, an al- an alpha code the, we're going to send you an ambulance but it may be 20 minutes to send you at the speed of which the the complaints you've registered is dictating and then we keep the paramedics focused on the things that paramedics do. I think the best system would have a lot of EMTs uh, and fewer paramedics. I'm not saying we need the Seattle model of the supermedics. You know, they have their four or five, maybe six RSI medics that run around and do everything and never really even transport. They're just like the supermedics. I don't. I don't know that we need to go that far. Um, certainly, the model works for them, and if you believe their data, it works extremely well. Um, some people have questioned it. Obviously, everyone questions data that looks great, um, but their their system is great. The numbers they report are amazing. Um, so I think the best system probably has a wealth of uh, wealth of EMTs running around uh, doing the, doing what they do well, and the EMTs aspiring to to be in in medicine as a career, either as an EMT or to grow their career into a become a paramedic. Um, and so we keep you guys keep your skills
0: fresh. Uh, well, I liked what you said about. You basically are alluding to the social determinants of healthcare, right. right and i think that is has a huge opportunity for ems to explore especially uh, the interaction between ems systems and uh, human services systems right and um, whether it be social work, and we've had social workers on the show uh, mental health clinicians i think that is a huge untapped nexus that we can uh, work with because let's be real um I mean ever since what was it the Reagan administration and the cutting of public health uh, mental health services uh, we we have the uh, so many things uh, I, I when you were talking about either like homeless patients or you know uh, patients that suffer from addiction uh, there's a mental health component that's um overarching all these patients and I think that is something that we can really address uh, I mean and I think it's as simple as sometimes reporting not just uh, because we're obviously mandatory reporters for abuse, but maybe if conditions are slightly off, something like that, reporting it to the emergency department nurse or whoever – um, or your leadership to communicate, hey, this patient might need some help. And because there's so many resources like case management uh, that I don't have a full appreciation for because I don't work in a hospital, but you know um, our colleagues within the hospital might be able to use and to uh, tap into to get uh, what those patients need. Uh, I think that whole process needs to be uh, a, a little bit more robust. And we, I know we go right back into the budgetary constraint conversation uh, but i think that's a huge potential f- uh, avenue for good um i don't know what that looks like uh, but i think there's a, like tons of potential there
2: yeah and there's there's more to come on that i know the Uh, Baltimore City Population uh, Health Division that's getting spun up right now is going to look at connecting people with city services because the city has a lot of services as well. I mean, the city has a big stake in helping these people. And, um, you know, before I probably cavalierly said we want to fix this person, addiction is a chronic illness. It's an illness. Mental health is a chronic illness. These things are not on off. Uh, These are diseases that are with you like hypertension for your whole life. Sometimes your blood pressure is going to be really high. Sometimes your addiction is bad and you're going to relapse. Sometimes, um, you know, your psychiatric disease is going to be more powerful than the medicines. And we have to understand that this is going to come and go. And our framework is not like, okay, this person's fixed. You know, we did it. We fixed the problem today. We got John off the street. John needs to be supported forever throughout his illness. And it's not just a band. There's no Band-Aid solution. And again, I said it before, you know, everyone wants to just turn something on and it works. These things need constant, constant attention to really be effective. And and I do worry a lot about that with community paramedicine and MIH that we're trying to patch holes that really need constant attention from experts who we may not be the, the best expert like a social worker
1: yeah I think that's a really good point you know underlying we bring up all these issues and we've brought this up with multiple guests of these issues that affect EMS how are we gonna fix it you know blah 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 but the reality is these issues like addiction and mental illness and poverty um, lack of education all these social issues um, some of them you know also health issues these aren't EMS problems these are not even healthcare problems. These are societal diseases that are not going to be solved, unfortunately, sitting around this table and talking about it. We need real action on a, a higher societal level um, to, to, that's going to filter down and eventually help EMS with our, our engagement with these issues. We see it on the most personal and human level, uh, compared to a lot of other people in society. Um, but this, this is a problem that permeates everything, I think, you know?
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, I really, really, really do not want to get political, but part of the problem is we haven't decided if, if healthcare is a right or not in this country. We've decided that emergency care is a right. And so we do an awesome job of fixing you when you've completely fallen off. Like when you're, when you were now officially hopeless, now we pick you up. But when you're about to become hopeless or terribly injured or terribly ill, we don't help you. You have to become, you have to have an emergency, at which point most counties or cities or states have a law that says if you call 911, someone will come uh, and they will take you to a hospital by law unless you refuse because you've called 911. It's, it's guaranteed. It doesn't matter if you're paying or not. When you get to the hospital, Mtala states that you will be stabilized to the point that you can be safely cared for or transferred or discharged. And so we've decided that emergency care is a thing. It must be terrible we will fix you but the rest of it is not guaranteed so that that is part of the conundrum here of we all play in this sandbox that we have to do this but there's no support and society hasn't really figured that part out yet
1: yeah no i agree and i don't want to get political either um
0: well let's get political ken i have a question okay. for you so okay. you said that it's not an ems problem right but uh, uh, and you're right it's not an EMS, um well okay this is me thinking stream of consciousness here so what is the definition of an ems problem right because we're slammed by it every day it is a problem uh, maybe not to entirely fix by ems as it stands today but it's certainly a problem that is affecting ems on a daily basis on an hourly basis right so right. Um, uh, i guess you're when you say uh we have to fix that at a higher societal level what does that mean is that a political answer is that a policy answer Wh- what do you mean
1: yeah i mean i mean that And I don't mean that this is not affecting EMS because it Mm -hmm. absolutely is a problem for EMS, but it's not a problem for EMS to solve in Mm. its entirety. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need complete societal and political reform to address these issues. Uh, I mean, there's no other answer to it. You know, there's nothing that Dr. Nussbaum or myself or you and our positions are going to do to fix poverty or to fix access to health care completely or Mm -hmm. to fix mental health or to end addiction, you know, like there's, there's nothing that we can do as an EMS agency to completely solve that problem. We can make things better for the individual end user that we see, um, but we can't
0: fix the entire problem. I don't know if that's entirely true though, because we, uh, we're kind of the, in a way like the... in a in a loop in a feedback loop system where we have a sensor, you have an, you know integrator and an effector, right? So we're kind of the sensors that are throwing off signals. There's a disconnect between the sensor and the integrator at the policy level, right? Before we can have effective change, and that integration occurs at the political level. We uh, I think and I think I imagine we already do this at the at the municipal level and the state level, but um, I wonder if there's a a different perspective to take in terms of how we interface with the folks uh, that are making the policy. Don't get me wrong. I I agree with you. There's obviously something wrong with how we make policy at the local, state, and and federal level. I I think everyone would agree with that. Um, I think there needs to be more centralized advocacy for not only – how do I say this right without getting fired – Um, There needs to be more centralized advocacy from EMS to the people making the policies. And there also needs to be a transition in how we see EMS at the federal level. And I know that's a little bit of a hot take, but the fact that that we're still under like a DOT guideline is a major issue. And I think that a lot of it has to come from, we have to transition to be seen as healthcare entities. Um, Our, I guess I'll never get a job at NHTSA now. But like we, <laughs> we should not be getting our primary emails from NHTSA. We should be getting it from the like from HHS. Uh, and additionally, we need to be seen as healthcare providers in the street that are advocating for our patients. Uh, at the at the policy level, so that when we are going to whatever subcommittee to talk about health and human services at the state or federal level, we are seen as colleagues to like physicians in the hospital, not as separate into, into, like transportation entities.
2: And I don't want to preach the value of an EMS physician because I'm not here to do that. But this is one thing that our organization, NAEMSP, National Association of EMS Physicians, we we. Pay a lot of money to be members of it, and there's a whole group that that advocates for EMS on the federal level. I mean, um, par- there's certainly groups of paramedics that advocate and lobby, et cetera. Um, but this is a group of physicians lobbying for EMS, mm-hmm. and, and it's not that we need more EMS physicians in the world. The, lo- the lobbying is that the street providers, the people, the EMTs, the EMTs who carry the the grunt of EMS in America, the bulk of it, um, the EMTs and the paramedics need. Support uh, and we need legislation to support that. So that that is one. Yeah. NAEMSP does a lot of good, um, but that's one of the really good things because people listen to physicians in suits in Congress. Mm-hmm. They just listen differently. Um, yeah. And COVID actually has helped a little bit with that because it, it telemedicine became more of a thing, and now there's like tele nine one one, and it, it's sorting to sort of. Like now we have this um, EMS offload crisis. It's sort of like bringing all these problems, which always existed, people are now more aware of. And unfortunately, like everything, when it affects poor people, no one cares that much. It only matters still it affects your congressperson or a rich person. Does anything get the the airwaves it deserves? But um, COVID kind of leveled the playing field and no one was getting anything. Mm-hmm. And so now it's getting a little bit more attention. I, I, if, if only I knew someone who worked for MIMS. I mean, the director, Dr. Delbridge, is now... Uh, has going to Annapolis to talk about EMS offload policies and how that should affect um, hospital compensation. Uh, that's, you know, that's a, a topic now that, you know, EMS has had offload problems forever. But now if you talk to some of your colleagues, I don't know if you know anyone in Canada or anyone listens from Canada, they, they, they spend whole shifts. What did you do today? Oh, I was in the ER on the wall. They spend whole shifts holding the wall. It would not be impossible. And that's, again, not commentary on social medicine. It's just the state of affairs is that I've spoken to paramedics who'd spent their 8- or 12-hour shift literally just holding the wall. They trade it. They trade shifts in the hospital just sitting there. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's not good.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I did not know that part. That's crazy. I didn't know that either. I've heard things about how things are up there. I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But um, Yeah, no, I just – I don't know. I just think that in the end, to solve these problems, uh, it's, there's got to be, there does have to be a top down aspect, but there also has to be a bottom up where we need to interface with the person on the street individually. And we're not going to fix this with a blanket policy. You know, there has to be the outreach, there has to be the human element of it. And we have to build people up from where they are. As opposed to just throwing sheets of money down Mm -hmm. and saying, I hope that this fixes everything.
2: Yeah. And I think just to bring it back to really to medicine for a second and, uh, you know, talk about protocols and progressive i think they're this year you know it'll whenever this is released but july 1st with the a lot of places have bu- buprenorphine is now more mm. available in the pre-hospital setting that's a great example yeah. of ems organizations like owning something <laughs> being like you know what the, you know what's affecting us really negatively and affecting our patients is addiction and substance use um, i don't know if this is news to either of you but there's a there's an opiate problem in this uh, this area hmm. um I, I don't know where it's coming from but we we have an opiate problem here um and there's a solution there's a a treatment for people, medication assisted therapy is research backed. Um, you have to. Note, though, it's medication-assisted therapy. The medicine alone does not solve the problem. Certainly, it will fix you from overdosing. If you take your bup every day, the chance of you having a humongous overdose that ends your life is very low. Not impossible, but very low. Certainly, you can overdose on other things. Um, But at least from the opiate perspective, buprenorphine should prevent you from having a lethal overdose. The the challenge is the linkage to care. And and EMS doesn't usually do the long-term cognitive therapy that comes with it. And so... Many of these jurisdictions around here, Frederick, I think, was the pioneer in, in Maryland. Um, Camden, New Jersey, was re- one of the real pioneers more lo- more regionally, locally, um, to, to take it on. But um, starting people, uh, initiating buprenorphine in the field is tremendous. I mean, it's really tremendous. There's a bupenex, a long, long-acting, um, uh, not bupenex, that's the uh, IV version. There's a long-acting injectable buprenorphine that you could take, like, monthly um, that That prevents you from having a lethal opiate overdose. So, we have these medications and EMS is getting involved with it. One of the challenges, uh, you know, in the Baltimore region, people are overdosing every day, but you guys are out there at three in the morning. And it's hard to link people who don't have a phone and maybe don't have a home to care at three in the morning. And so like everything, th- there's no straightforward answer and every jurisdiction is going to be different. But I think that's one really good example of EMS just owning a problem and being like, you know what, hospitals, you're not you're not doing this well enough. We're going to we're going to own this. Mm-hmm. And like we, c- we can do this. So we're going to pair up with our physician colleagues, write a, write a protocol pair up with our ems physician colleagues to write a protocol that we can use we're going to pair up with our psychiatry colleagues to get them follow up whether it be on the on the phone in real time or in their office tomorrow and we're going to we're going to take this problem on for for society's good
0: that's great i wanted to give an opportunity for you to ask any questions or just like you know if you if you wanted to take some time to you know say anything i mean obviously you have your new role which is very exciting but yeah anything like that anything you wanted to say i mean floor is yours That's fine. Yeah. You're fine.
2: So I think in, in Pittsburgh, the reality was that we had a, a robust, um, robust recruitment and retention because of the Pittsburgh EMS is all third service, uh, which is very foreign to the East Coast. It's not not a common model. They They had their own bureau that was separate from the fire department, that was separate from the police department. The paramedics did all the rescues. They were on the the river rescue was two medics. If you car- crashed your car, it would be a medic holding the hearse tool or the jaws. Um, and so we had the benefit of having two medics on every truck, um, even on every first line ALS unit. Um around here that's not so common. Uh th- that is common, but I'm not sure that's gonna be the future. I see a lot of jurisdictions floating the idea. Um not necessarily jurisdictions I work for, but I, I've you know heard paramedics who work lots of different places saying, you know, I don't know if we can sustain this. What's your guys' thought on uh moving to like a one-in-one model in the places that don't do it? I mean, certainly I'd want two paramedics on my ALS call.
0: I mean I would say that the only place I've, well, okay, where I still work PR and where I work full time, it was two paramedics, but even there, they're piloting a paramedic EMT on a chase truck, and the EMT takes BLS upgrades, and then the th- second paramedic is on a truck by themselves. Th- that's a very recent change, and I love it, because I've been the paramedic o- by myself, and that that's where I most enjoy, and I feel most challenged. Um, I don't know, it seems reasonable to have an EMT paramedic partner, I, I, but then again, I come from a place where that was the norm, so I don't know. Full disclaimer,
1: this has no reflection on anywhere I have worked or do work or will ever work. Uh, however, uh, what I'll say about a one in one staffing model is that a lot of places do it successfully. I think the way things are with staffing across the country, I think it's happening a lot already in places that claim to be dual paramedic, and they're running one in one I don't advocate for one in one because I know a lot of people love working dual ALS and I think dual ALS is great, but I just don't know how realistic it is in 2023. If We
2: have to cut that. We do. It's politics. It's it's a hot topic. No.
0: Yeah. I I, I mean, it's up to you. I I, I think it's fine. I I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just used to an EMT with a paramedic. So like when I went to work in a chase system that was dual paramedic, I was like, hell yeah, this is cool. It's always helpful to have another set pair of hands that's a paramedic. But at the same time, I think one of the most invaluable resources in EMS is a really good EMT that yeah. almost uh, you know measures you and w- is looking at things in a different way. I've had my ass saved by EMT plenty of times. Um, but the, uh, I certainly – I think there's pros and cons to each from a budgetary perspective. I hope we're not doing it to hmm, – I don't think – I don't want to dilute quality, but it, but that's, a, you know, it's not even quality. It's a level of care that's coming. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of the interventions that a BLS provider can do are the ones that actually say have been shown to improve outcomes. So I don't know.
2: I guess another similarly hot topic or another hot topic in EMS is there are lots of places, including in many jurisdictions in Pennsylvania that have essentially made lights and sirens, a thing of the past. The culturally, the idea of doing that is extremely challenging. There's literature to certainly support running non-emergent to a lot of things. Um, I My observation of j- districts in Maryland is that there's a lot of lights and sirens here. What's your thoughts on that?
1: I take a very unpopular approach with this with the people who have read the research and that I don't advocate for not running lights and sirens. The reason being is I have been on a handful of alpha calls that were fresh cardiac arrests, and we know that that's time sensitive. Um, And I know they say the time that it takes to run lights and sirens doesn't save you anything, but I can tell you with absolute certainty, again, anecdotally, not scientifically, if I had a call near my station where I work and I ran lights and sirens to the local major medical center... In rush hour, I could be there in under five minutes. Trying to get back for relief when I left that same hospital, 15 to 20 minutes. And you cannot tell me that lights and
0: sirens didn't save me I got to echo that. I have to echo that, especially, like I said, where I work PRN. And there are uh, dispatch determinants where we don't go lights, right? Uh, Like Omega calls, even some alphas, right? The thing is this. Also, when the response time is, when I plug into GPS and it says 25 minutes and it's in my first due, because that's just the system I work in, I, you can't tell me lights and sirens aren't going to help. Also, the traffic thing, right? Uh, and again, this is anecdotal. I would love to see, and I, ha- I don't know the landscape of the research that's gone into this, but I w- imagine they try to do some sort of, Uh, You know, uh, accounting for what we're talking about, traffic and distance to response, but like, come on, like it just it, it seems to be. I'm not saying we should be going lights and sirens to everything, and that lights are always appropriate. But there's certainly a middle ground to non to not using lights at all, which is to me ridiculous.
1: If it's a first person caller and they're on the line and they say my tooth aches, I get it. I'm down with that. But when it's grandma calls and said. Oh, Grandpa fell and he can't get up. And it's an alpha fall because he's allegedly conscious alert because his eyes are open. He's breathing because Grandma doesn't know if he's breathing or not and just says yes. And... You know what I mean? Like yeah, You get where my trepidation is.
2: Exactly. I, th- I think you've alluded to a lot of the key points. There's a lot of, I mean, th- there's certainly a wealth of literature showing that um, the number of time-sensitive emergencies are fewer fewer than we'd all like to think, but certainly there are time-sensitive emergencies. There's going to be a lot of districts and times of the day, and you know, there's a lot of situational things. I think what it comes down to is medicine, and especially out-of-hospital medicine, is very gray. There's not a black-and-white policy that's going to, suit every district every time every jurisdiction every what you know there's nothing that can work blanket across everything um i think probably like everything being logical and thoughtful about it um is probably the safest approach you know i haven't thought about it for the places i work um, but i know there's other parts of the country where it's always a hot topic to talk about
0: yeah it's like uh the other thing i want to say is this we root our conversations in uh you know the 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 what's the mean? What's the median? What's the average? And will the average call have benefits? Uh, again, I'm not going. I, I, I'm a. I like to think of myself as a scientist, right? Like we. I, I am. I'm rooted in using sound scientific theory to fix the problems that approach not only EMS but society in general. With that being said, we should be very wary of the outliers, because those outliers are also citizens that pay taxes and are valuable members of society because every human being, right? If when you approach this from a human, uh, you know, from a humanistic level, we're trying to help folks here. Um, and to a, a statistician, it might be easier, uh, to discount the outliers. Um, and they'll say, Oh, there's no statistically, uh, no, there's no statistic benefit, statistically significant benefit. Right. But when we're the folks on the ground having to pronounce that outlier, right that person matters, uh, that person's family, uh, that we have to tell that their person didn't make it matters. Um, so I, I, that's why I try to advocate for a measured approach when, cause that's how we do research today, right? I mean, we use, we take a research question, right? We apply whatever, you know, uh, uh, study parameters that we're going to do. Right. And we, 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 there's an outcome that's like basic research. However, whether it's a uh, you know prospective study, whether it's an observational study, whatever we're doing, it's very uh, it's a personal issue of mine when folks dismiss two things: their limitations in their study and the outliers, because those both of those things equal real people. And, and sort of like a,
2: a less hot take question, because I, I do I think I agree agree with the, most of not all the things you just said there. If you're jurisdiction or maybe maryland as a whole could add something to the ems protocol um, what would you like to see come next for for either your jurisdiction or for the state that you've heard other you know i'm part of all these facebook groups where people talk about what other people this is so cool we do that how come you don't do this what would you like to see come here or come to your local
1: that's a hard one doc um i mean i feel like we are beginning to reach the limits of my knowledge as far as what is pre-hospitally appropriate. The only two things that I see on the table that I would like to eventually see come to where I work are blood and finger thoracotomy. Those
2: are the two that came to mind most quickly when I thought about it, too, is most jurisdictions could probably find a patient that would benefit from a finger thoracostomy and then also blood. Um, Texas has been very... Uh, very forward pushing in that because the rules in Texas are very different. Um, the medical director just signs a piece of paper and tomorrow it's a protocol. Yeah. Um, we can talk about freedom in Texas another time, um, but it certainly makes pushing forward uh, protocols very easy. And so Texas, San Antonio specifically, has been e- extremely successful in giving out blood both to medical and traumatic patients. I don't know their outcomes data. That's always more challenging, but they've successfully implemented protocols. Actually, I believe it's the San Antonio Fire Department. All of the blood is donated by the, that department, mm-hmm. by the, the, the men. Um, they don't use female blood at the moment, because there's more antibodies and antigen in the female blood, so they typically use um, male, the male member's um, self-donated blood to save save their patients, which is really incredible.
0: So I would, I don't really think. I, I imagine if I did some research, there would be some protocols I would want. But I think the lower hanging fruit that's more critical is improving the system of education that allow that makes um, every EMT and paramedic. Uh, exposed to the educational system. So, what do I mean by that? If we were to do finger thoracostomy or blood tomorrow, there'd be a sizable portion of EMTs and paramedics in the state that don't have access to real quality education that makes that w- we can make sure these people are competent at that skill. So, I think that's the opportunity. Whatever novel co- you know approaches we can take to bridge the gap between, say, a centralized municipal department that has. Um, you know, maybe they're closer to the folks that, or maybe they're not as close to the folks that need the actual training on the ground to folks that can provide that training. I think that if we can solidify that we can make the pipeline to introduce new protocols more efficient and have better outcomes that way, because I think that would be a rate limiting step. How do I ensure that every EMT that's going to CPAP knows that you can tank someone's blood pressure. Like, how can I m- guarantee that it's not going to be a didactic only education? How can I ensure that the people that are teaching this skill at a, a you know the, a very small but crucial volunteer department in a rural county? How can I ensure that the quality of education that they get is the same and the outcomes are the same uh, than uh, to so, uh, a, a centralized department that can have can verify competency from trained staff.
2: And what, what you've hinted at is what a lot of other states typically use medical consultation for. Maryland's protocols don't call for consultation a lot. In Pennsylvania, the protocols have a line about halfway down the page where these are the things you can do, and then you consult to do the rest of the page. Um, MIMS, for one reason or another, historically, I think, has just taken away the, the,
0: the, value, the, the consult on a lot of these things. They just let you do them. To be clear, consultation is not the answer. Uh, No, no, no! But I I get what you're saying. But like consultation is absolutely not the answer.
2: I'm just saying that other systems have said we can't educate Mm -hmm. to the degree, and so because we can't educate in real time, we need this skill out there. We've added the consultation as the stopgap. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just explaining how other places are, you know, just.
0: Sorry, I didn't mean to jump up your throat yeah. there, bud.
2: No, the, the, the consultation is not the answer, but it is the supposed to be the safety net. I, I think consultation goes poorly a lot of times, and it doesn't get the intended outcome. And if there's something that you consult for, um, like MAG for COPD, it's like you consult on it, and it's 99.9 times we're going to say yes. And so like, if, mm-hmm. if, at that point, it's like, why, why are we still consulting on it?
0: And I, and I think that's on the table right right yeah. exactly yeah. but but that's how things change example. um yeah. but
2: but there's things that if if the answer is always yes, mm-hmm. just either put the you know the one exclusion in the protocol and make it happen, or you know remove the console
0: but I think that's a huge that's a great example actually, what you just brought up um but that's a huge opportunity that's what I would like to see some sort of and it doesn't need it, it i think it kinda crosses multiple different processes that we have right now, I think that would be. I'd be interested in seeing how can we improve that interface so that if tomorrow X skill was introduced that had high risk, high reward, we could more confidently say that the average person that's going to execute that skill across the state – is uh, going to successfully execute that skill with m- uh, minimizing patient harm. So that's what I would say. I don't have any like thorac finger thoracotomy. Uh, thoracostomy, excuse me, fi- sound great. Blood sounds great. I just I don't know. Maybe that's something I'm like falling short on, but I don't really have a specific protocol. Rescue airways for EMTs. Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's another. That's another good one. Um, and I, and I think there's ways to do it. Of course, it comes down to like you said, training. Those are mm-hmm. something you can't even stopgap with the with a. With a good or bad consult um, yeah. you, you just need training and and i think there's a, a good use of it
0: yeah no i but i i think that yeah like supraglottic airways uh you know cpap seems reasonable uh i i'm trying to think of random other things i don't i don't know like <coughs> glucagon for EMTs. sure yeah yeah i don't know I, I pitched that to my medical director
1: once he didn't he didn't go for it but um I mean, I just think if, you know, if I if I had diabetes, they would give my wife a glucagon kit, and she could... Mm.
0: So why can't an EMT? Hey, I do have a question. I just thought... Oh, so I randomly remember this the other day. So I had a patient who had dystonia from, like, Haldol and I had to consult. This was years ago, but I had to consult for the Benadryl. Why? Why do you think that is? Is there, like, a negative potential outcome for me giving Benadryl to a dystonia? Um
2: benadryl is very safe
0: medication yeah. um, probably it's more
2: that dystonia is not that common mm-hmm. um, and you could confuse it for other things potentially mm-hmm. um, and so it's more making you say the case Mother, out. May I. no yeah. it's it's sometimes it helps to talk through a case honestly mm-hmm. and um
0: benadryl is a safe medication yeah this one was a textbook dystonia and i'd like Basically fixed her by the time we got it all, but, you know. I
1: had a real interesting dystonia one mm-hmm. time. This was this was years ago. Uh, the area I was working in as a paramedic at the time had a lot of drug activity, and uh, this patient had taken some random pills that they got from someone and had a dystonic reaction, and it resolved with Benadryl. It was crazy how know.
0: she was fine by the time we got to the hospital. It, it, it's it's an antidote. I mean,
2: the antidote n- naloxone works incredibly well. Yeah. Uh, we, we take
0: it for granted because we give it, but
2: you literally are performing magic. I mean, yeah. this person is not <laughs> breathing at all. They, mm-hmm. they are seconds from being dead. You BVM a little bit, give a mm-hmm. medication, and all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. And they it, won- it, it is like there are so few magical things in this world that yeah. you instantly do, especially in medicine. Yeah. And that is one of them.
0: And they want to refuse. And yeah. then they refuse, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. That's neither here nor there. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there's some places that actually the protocol states you you cannot give um, Narcan until you've BVM for two minutes, and then after you BVM for two minutes, you can get you have to establish an IV or attempt, and you have to give them 0.5 of Narcan. Um, in Maryland, most people have gotten about 12 to 16 milligrams of uh, Citizen Narcan. They've gotten another four of police or fire Narcan before they get the two EMS Narcan. So we, we've our pendulum has swung quite far uh, mm-hmm. locally here because the the problems with drugs are so Prevalent, um, but I, I know a lot of protocols in Florida two minutes of BVMs between every round mm-hmm. of Narcan. So you try to do the you, you try to coach people into the smoother wake up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a little bit weary of what's about to happen in Maryland because of xylazine. I mean, we, mm-hmm. w- we're starting to see people um, who are just out forever. I mean, xylazine lasts so I think it's all xylazine. What we're seeing, it could be carfentanil, but I think it's xylazine because that's what the the, de- the health department data shows us out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people that stay not unconscious, but like very limited consciousness for hours mm-hmm. and hours. That's out there now. Yep. I it's had a-
1: one just the other day. Just It was interesting, um, presented as an opioid overdose. Uh, respiratory rate came up with naloxone, but not a whole lot, but enough that it was effective on its own. Sadding okay, didn't need any more naloxone. Um, but this person had four milligrams of naloxone total, not counting anything that was given before we got there, which supposedly wasn't any. Um, but just totally out, yep, and just and Didn't and, respond. and i
2: think that's all xylazine honestly because carfentanil should respond to naloxone it could be benzos but they were their respiratory rate wouldn't improve um, you know if you benzo overdose you're not breathing
1: mm-hmm. and it wasn't a huge improvement. it was like from 8 to 14 right exactly you know, and like- that's cuz
2: it's all mixed together though it's all opiates and xylazine and i had someone the other day in, in the, where i work in the city the guy told me he only takes xylazine now really? like he, it, it's prevalent to the point that he can shop for it Um, And it's not like, oh, there's a little contaminant in here. It's like, no, he's sneaking the pills with it. And we routinely have people that are in the ER 14 hours until they can honestly get up and walk around and, to participate in that's not been the experience in the past with other opiates
1: what kind of drug is xylazine
2: uh it's a animal tranquilizer that's a, like an alpha 2 agonist it's you can think of it like clonidine okay. um the, the my my two concerns with xylazine among the infinite concerns is that people are bradycardic and hypotension and if i am a patient of yours and i'm bradycardic and hypotensive and altered my god we are going to do so many things to this person. Someone's going to get three liters of fluid for their sepsis. Someone's going to get paste for their cardiac dysrhythmia. Uh, someone is going to get uh, 16 milligrams of Narcan for their bradypnea. And all they really need is time. And this is really scares me because we're going to do so much to these people um, that we're going to hurt them. And a lot of what we do in medicine is um, we, we cause harm. Mm-hmm. Um, medicine is very capable. We're very capable of causing harm. And I'm very concerned with the harm that's going to be done. Um, And just because we don't take bradycardia and hypotension, we don't let that sit around. Mm -mm. You have to have an extremely strong clinical suspicion and acumen to sit on that. Um, And and I'm really worried about it. And EDs are already struggling. I don't know if that's news to you. You've probably been in one recently. It's not a good place. Um, And when our routine overdoses are not leaving in three to four hours, they're not going to get better when the average overdose is there for 14, 15 hours. I mean, that is not going to help hospitals Mm. in any way. And so the, the, I, I think we're at the tip of an iceberg here with this. Um, the prevalence is going up and up and up. When this young man told me he only seeks xylazine, I was like, oh, God, it's here. Like,
0: <laughs> we're we're in trouble. Where's that, like – I mean, so I remember back in the day when I worked retail pharmacy, I remember it being like, like clonidine was like the thing that, like, people would combine. Yep, um, and it's the s- same thing, same, yeah.
2: similar mechanism. I, d- I don't exactly know uh, – the ways it works but it seems to prolong the effects of the fentanyl mm. so you don't get quite as high quite as fast and then it you just stay chilled forever hmm. um, and there was literally a lady who spent 24 hours in the emergency department without getting up out of bed and it's not because we're like you know people say oh you coddle but coddle everyone you're letting them sleep there and get too comfortable she could not make a full sentence till the 24th hour like it just—I mean—her brain probably took a hit from hypoxia. That probably mm-hmm. was playing a role, but she just needed to sit there. And, and her family pre- was there. I mean, this was like
0: not someone we didn't care about. And these are presenting people th- as like just opioid overdoses. Yeah, all the same,
2: opioid overdose got an arcane, got a little better. Now they're out again.
0: And the treatment is just a supportive care?
2: It's supportive care for now. Some people have argued for high-dose naloxone. Um, that's not been borne out from what I know or what I've read. The, the concern mm. is that the naloxone literature shows that there's an inflection point around 8 milligrams where bad things start happening after the 8th milligram, namely uh, pulmonary edema, mm-hmm. Narcan pulmonary edema. And we've talked
0: about that on other episodes. Yeah, so,
2: the eight, so I'm worried that people are going to be routinely slamming, oh, we got to try the 15th milligram on this person, and then you're going to get all the all the badness from the opiate, which they also ingested. Um, cause it's very rare to see f- straight xylazine. I think it's all contaminant, but it's probably higher percentage contaminant. Are
0: there antidotes for, I mean, uh, alpha two agonism is, uh, what about countering that? Is there an opportunity for anything? Uh, mean, ep- epinephrine. You, well, <laughs> I
2: yeah. mean, uh, you can give epi, you could give, put them on a drip, you know, levophed is coming. Um, but the, Mostly they maintain a map of 60 Mm -hmm. and honestly, this is like some people talk about, you know, the value of the paramedic and this is it like this is it they've taken they've been on the scene. They've gathered the history from bystanders. They've used their clinical judgment. They see that the person is not ill appearing because, you know, if you're septic and your blood pressure is 80, you're sick. You're not well. You know, you don't, you're not chilling. You're, di- you're actively dying and basically about to be dead. If you have heart block and, and your pulse is 50, you probably die, or pulse is 40 or whatever. You're diaphoretic. You're vomiting because mm-hmm. you're hypoperfusing. You're not like sleeping. And so a, a lot of this, and the, the diagnostic momentum is humongous. If you call me and you say, I had this hypotensive bradycardic patient, I gave them two liters of fluids, I'm calling in a septic alert. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell the pharmacist, get the vancomycin ready because I trust my pre-hospital providers. Mm-hmm. And they're going to get a lactate, which is inevitably going to be high. Then they're going to get admitted for sepsis, which they never had. Mm-hmm. And yes, I can, I can stand down these, you know, we stand down stroke alerts all the time. It's not that you can't stand down pre-hospital things, but there's real, you know, most of us trust what we're getting and there's real diagnostic momentum momentum and um those vital signs really really worry me a lot and and that's usually what you see Hmm. and then you throw in some cocaine in the mix and it's like who knows what you're going to get are you going to be hypertensive and bradycardic and then we think you have a brain bleed Mm -hmm. and like i I mean the the combinations are very opiates are great in the sense that the presentation is the same and they respond to narcan and it doesn't take that long but this xylazine is a different different ball. My pleasure. Love the love the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. we'll pick a topic next time and in focus instead yeah. of the potpourri. but I enjoyed it. Yeah,
0: no, this is good though. I'm glad we, uh, especially listeners that are now going to be, um, you know, how do I say this? I was going to say subjected War to your medical direction. Yeah, colleagues. I was going yeah, I was going yeah, to say subjected <laughs> to your medical direction, and I was like, oh, that's not good. Yeah, but yeah, no. Uh, uh, you know, future colleagues. I mean, seriously, congrats on the position. You know, uh, uh you know, like I think I was telling a few folks I, I met you. Uh, before all this, right, I met you uh, uh, working the inauguration for the uh, the now new governor. And uh, your affect, your demeanor, your leadership is what, uh, you know, it was, it's fantastic. I think you're one of the folks that really wants to progress EMS. But uh, additionally, you value the folks on the ground and their opinion. I think that's crucial. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, the Baltimore County Fire Department and the folks that volunteer at work for the Baltimore County Fire Department and the citizens of Baltimore County um have uh gained a real boon in getting you as a medical director so uh, i'm really excited to see where things go um and i'm really happy that you know you you, you chose that path
2: yeah and I, I appreciate the uh the nice words there and i'll also add I, you know i haven't officially started but i, I did some ride-alongs and i'll actually comment I, I was on a rescue the other day it didn't turn out to be much of a rescue but um i i saw what i saw in the scene was really um Atypical of my past experiences in other places, and I've been a lot of places. So you shouldn't be able to pinpoint exactly which ones I've had um, mm. less than positive experiences. But there was a rescue call where it was a, a dispatch as a cardiac arrest on a roof. Um, it was on an awning about twenty-five feet up on a construction site, um, and, and that's not good. <laughs> that's bad. Um, and you know, we we're driving there, and it's like, oh yeah, probably just an overdose. And it was a young construction worker, and I was like, oh man, this is really bad. Like this is like really bad. But the uh, the first do engine company got in and. Um, Took, immediately took control of the scene like you know this engine whatever I, I have command um, and then when the EMS, EMS crew showed up and then an officer showed up pretty simultaneously they relinquished um, the operational command and gave up medical command um, to that EMS officer and then when the rescue the, the special operations company came they on the radio relinquished rescue operations to someone else that's the true NIMS I don't know which NIMS it is about 300 but that idea of giving up command is not common in fire services a lot of fires services, especially places where there's volunteers who take great great pride in beating their neighbor to something, um, don't do that very well. And to watch the humility of different leaders say, nope, I'm not the absolute best person right now, um, that's fantastic. And medicine will humble you. And if you're not already humble, you're going to fail. And that that gave me a lot of hope. And I think, I don't know if I'm talking with you, Ken, but you know, we go to a lot of rescues and I really grew up in the pittsburgh medically directed rescue scenario and the idea that there's an operational leader and a medical leader and they're working together on this on this um whatever whatever scene it may be is is really amazing and i was a very promising experience to see that that sort of camaraderie and humility of like nope i'm not the best one for this specific task right now like you're up bud
0: Mm -hmm. yeah no i'm really excited to see where you know where the department grows where you grow and uh, yeah, seriously, thank you. Uh, you know, thank you for coming on, Ken. Uh, you, um, you're open to finish us out if you want. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Alert Medic One. It's been a wonderful conversation
1: with Dr. Nosbaum. We hope that you will join us here again soon. Please find us online. Leave us a like, a rating, a review. Let us know what you think. Uh, share this podcast with a friend and have a safe day or night wherever you are. Thank you for all of us at Alert Medic One.
0: You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Saner.